0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Whitney Tilson. Whitney, how are you doing? Great. glad to be back. Glad to have you here again. And I mentioned that we're going to go over how things went since last time. And I dug up the old emails that we referred to. I wonder if I should read the emails first or go through your experience first. And you know your experience and I don't.
1: My experience isn't a particularly long or compelling story. So
0: maybe start with the emails if you want. So I'll start with the email. So I'll read the one that I wrote to you, and then I'll read the one that I had responded to that prompted. No, I'll I'll read yours first, because it has all the cursing in it. So the core of your email to me said, "As of, and this is in December, late December.
1: Right. And this went out to a broad group of people, not just to you, right? Yeah, this is
0: to the email list, and it refers to other emails that you sent. So now this is Whitney speaking. As of a week ago, after a few stragglers finally got the jab, I didn't think I knew a single person who wasn't vaccinated, but I was wrong. A friend, A.D., that's the initials, who lives in New York City, confessed that he had gotten COVID and had never been vaccinated. I guess I shouldn't have been so surprised, as he often sends me crazy conspiracy stuff, to which I replied, and this is you to AD, whoever AD is, the instant I determined that a person like RFK Jr. or source like Epoch Times traffics in conspiracy theories, I never read them again. I urge you to do the same. The fact that you didn't get vaccinated speaks volumes about how you've allowed your brain to become poisoned now you said he responded, and this is now him, AD, saying, it's fascinating how we can have very similar ethics, but since me and friends feel exactly the same about your news sources that you feel about ours, we end up at each other's throats. This is exactly why actual debate, love, open-mindedness, and understanding is needed. Now you wrote, I explained, and now this is you saying to him again, sending me something by RFK Jr., asking me to watch it, and saying, where is what he's saying wrong, though? And suggesting we should engage with him rather than canceling him is like sending me something by David Duke, saying he makes some good points about race relations and inviting a conversation. To be clear, RFK Jr. is to discussions on vaccine what David Duke is to discussions on race. And then you added, yesterday I added in a text to the group. Now this is your voice again. Sending you all the love on Christmas. And you want to know how I can tell I love you? I shoot straight with you if I think you're fucking up. With the little star there. DR, so someone else you refer to uh, initials, if you told me you're engaged to a woman you met through the working the pole at a strip club, I tell you you're a fucking idiot. KD, if you told me you recently bought a crotch rocket motorcycle and were riding it without a helmet, I tell you you're a fucking idiot. Do to for anyone who chooses, chooses not to get vaxxed. It's only if you weren't my friend and I didn't care about you that I'd just stay quiet. So sending you love from Kenya this Christmas, AD. For more on these fucking idiots, <laughs> see this article in the New York Times. As Omicron spreads and cases soar, the unvaccinated remain defiant. All right, so I read that and thought, okay, he's telling his friends because I care about you, because I love you. That's why I'm calling you a fucking idiot. So I wrote to you, and this is what got the response. This is what led you to being here, Whitney. Since you wrote that quote, it's only if you weren't my friend and I didn't care about you that I just stay quiet. That you say you're a fucking idiot. In your spirit of friend, this is me continuing. In your spirit of friendship and caring. In your words, in parentheses, since I wouldn't say it this way, regarding your environmental behavior, you are a fucking idiot. (laughs) And then I said, to repeat, I say this in your spirit of friendship and caring. And I continue. I read most of your emails. Your message on COVID parallels why to take responsibility on our environmental behavior with a couple differences. The environment is a bigger problem, already killing tens of millions annually. Nearly everyone is contributing, so everyone has to change for the world to become sustainable. I invite you to a conversation, if you're game, on my podcast. And in parentheses, I said, you'll be in great company. You'll know many of the list of popular guests. Even if you only want to focus on the pandemic, you'll benefit from being on the other side. You'll learn what works or not about influencing people with irrational responses. You'll benefit all the more from better understanding the people you want to influence if you're thinking, I already have my issue and I don't want to spread myself thin, or what I do doesn't matter, or only governments and corporations can act on the scale that we need. Care to schedule a call, recorded or not? Signed, Josh, and that's what brought you to last yes. time and to this yes. time.
1: Yes, and I got a kick because I one I had no idea who you were. You've been sort of a lurker, or not really emailing me very often, but you've been on my email list for years. But so I Googled you, and I thought it was pretty. What you wrote was very well written and provocative. And honestly, I went back. I could see immediately that you were a credible person and had written books and were a teacher and so forth. And you didn't live too far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could bike Quite down to see you. <laughs> um, But honestly, I just went back went clearly environmental slash sustainability stuff is your big issue. And I'm already engaged on so many big issues that I'm like, gee, do I really want to start engaging with a guy who's like a world expert on this and something I've never really engaged in other than reading the paper and being just a... Generally, I'd like to think I'm a reasonably well-read person, but this has never been an issue I've really engaged on. Mm-hmm. So that was my main hesitation. Yeah. The last thing I need is another, you know, issue to to adopt. But I thought it'd be fun, and you sound like an interesting guy. So, and I'm glad I did.
0: I appreciate you taking me up on it and looking me up and so forth. And well, now if you have issues, the pandemic is obviously a big one for you, but before the pandemic, it wasn't. So did you face the choice with that one to? engage on that one or not? And if so, how did you make that choice?
1: Yes. Getting super involved and and by getting engaged, just spending at least an hour, if not two hours a day since the pandemic started, just reading and learning about it and following the latest developments is one part of it. But then Writing about it broadly to, I send, I do a daily investing related email to about 140,000 people every weekday and starting to communicate to that group. But I have many other email lists. That's the largest one. But in other words, not just learning for my own edification or whatever, but to start uh, establishing within my group of people where I'm a little bit of an influencer, right? Like on a small scale, but I thought hard, there were a number of reasons I decided to engage. The most important one was, is and the most immediate was, it was having a huge impact on the stock market. And my full-time job is writing investment, publishing investment newsletters, where we have those 140,000 people who receive a free daily from me. But I also have more than 80,000 paid subscribers who are paying me to give them good investment advice. And the pandemic caused the the stock market to have its fastest decline ever. Even with the Great Depression, the global financial crisis, Mm -hmm. the stock market, the S&P 500 had never fallen 35% in as short a period of time as it did in six weeks, Mm -hmm. from middle of February to late March of 2020. So the main, I could justify what I was feeling in my heart, which is this is something that could shock the world and is super important. So I'm just interested in it. But I could also justify spending a lot of time on it to try to figure out whether we were going to get a hold on this. How severe would the lockdowns be? How long would it last? Because that very much affected the stock market. My initial analysis in the first month or so that I was engaging was that the lockdowns would work, that the S-curve of cases and hospitalizations and deaths would soon peak, and that the stock market would heave a huge sigh of relief and rally strongly. And that was so my initial engagement was to tell my readers at the very bottom, the day the stock market bottomed on March 23rd of 2020, my colleague and I recorded a two-hour webinar that we pulled together in a day, Saying just pounding the table that this is the best time to buy stocks since the global financial crisis Mm -hmm. and we listed the 10 stocks that we recommended buying to our paid subscribers Mm -hmm. Um, But we gave it away. We just gave the pound the table We didn't give the list of stocks that was to our paid subscribers, Mm -hmm. but to our free subscribers I said, buy any stock. It is, we're going to see the mother of all rallies here. And sure enough, that advice proved. So it was, it was an issue I engaged in for business reasons. And it was one of the great calls in my business career, my investing career. The honest truth is, even if I were, had been, were retired and didn't have paid subscribers counting on me to give them investment advice, I still think I would have engaged to the same degree because I think it's one, super important and two, super interesting.
0: So, I want to come a quick comment on you saying minor influence. One of the reasons I invited you here is you're, I consider you're not influential on the scale of Obama, but I think of you as a pretty influential person. And that was even before I knew how many paid subscribers you had. I know that you're. And okay, so that's. There are people with
1: millions of Twitter followers or whatever, but I used to be back at the peak of my hedge fund days in the investing world. I was probably. I don't know how you would measure it, but I was on CNBC every week on national television. I was featured twice on 60 Minutes, and I was probably one of the 10 or 20 best-known investors in the world and very well-known for being a follower and scholar of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, who are the two probably best-known investors in the world. That was back in my heyday when I was running money. I'm not sure whether today I'd say I'm certainly, I'm not on CNBC anymore. I I have been a little more low profile. But look, one, I've been very fortunate in my life and had a lot of good luck with my business and all and built up a following. And you somehow ended up on one of my, you were on my education reform. I was... That was probably the issue even before investing, where I really made a name for myself.
0: See, you're talking about the scope, the scale of things, but I'm thinking of the intimacy of the connection between you and the people who follow you. You're not like an influencer on Instagram who's just putting on makeup and people will go to the next pretty picture Yeah, I
1: try to engage on the major issues I've engaged on in my life have been education reform, criminal justice reform, and politics in general, and then investing. The investing world is preaching the gospel of value investing, and I like to say I pray in the church of Graham, Dodd, Buffett, and Munger. Those have been the major ones, and then I have little things like you're now on my adventure sports and fitness email list, and but that's only got a few thousand people on it. And then the whole pandemic and the coronavirus, I've got I don't know eight thousand people who signed up just to get my in-depth updates on the latest on the pandemic, which I send out once a week or so.
0: Now you talked about your engagement with the pandemic as a stock market issue and as a practical matter, but that didn't mean that you would have to take an active approach to saying people are fucking idiots. But even aside from the fucking idiots, the amount of research you put into it and the reading in all the graphs and charts that you put out, and but you're taking a, an active—you're very active. You're, you're telling people this is what you should do. And I don't know if it's passive to say you were just deciding stri- stock market strategies based or investing strategies based on it, but this is really getting into it. So yeah, there was—it was actually contrary
1: to my business interests to be strongly encouraging people to get vaccinated. Because here's a little dirty little secret of the um, investment newsletter business, which is what I'm in now, which is people on the political right slash libertarian types are buy more newsletters than people on the political left. The typical subscriber among my 80,000 paid subscriber is the Ford dealer in Macon, Georgia, who doesn't... And the reason he's buying investment newsletters is because he doesn't trust, he's very skeptical of big institutions and whatever. So he doesn't trust a Merrill Lynch broker to manage his money, right? Uh, he, he owns the Ford dealer. He's a small business owner, um, believes in small government, low taxes, and he's probably, he's worth a few million dollars and he doesn't trust Wall Street to manage his money. He wants to manage his own money, but he's looking for advice and so forth. So he signs up for an investment newsletter. So, you can see how I pissed off a lot of my readers by really pushing the vaccines hard. And I persuaded quite a few of my readers to get vaccinated because they emailed me and said, Whitney, the stuff you wrote, and this wasn't a one time thing, like what you just read, what I was sending to my friend, this was, I'd been sending every email for months, I was pounding the table to get vaccinated, right? And every time I'd send out one of those emails, I would get a handful of emails back from people um, saying, Thank you. You presented data and facts and so forth that helped me make a decision, or I passed along to my son or my father or somebody close to me that dispelled the lies and misinformation that's out there being spread by the RFK juniors of the world and thanking me. And so it really felt like I was making a difference. But at the same time, I was probably getting the same number of emails. For people saying, you should just shut up. It's a personal decision Mm -hmm. and hating on me. And in some cases, canceling their subscription to my newsletter and demanding a refund, that kind of thing. So it's not clear it was good for my business, Mm -hmm. but I felt like it was most important, it was unknowable the impact on my business. Mm -hmm. And therefore I was choosing to rationalize that. At the end of the day, I've tried to be mostly respectful the cursing here and telling my friend, and by the way, of course, anyone reading my email who hasn't gotten vaccinated, they are, of course, perceiving that I'm calling them a fucking idiot as well. And you know what? I was. (laughs) But people, look, I'm in the business of trying to get people to read me. That's my business depends on people finding me not only insightful, but interesting and when they get we're all drowning in a sea of reading material emails and so forth right so how do you stand out you need to be willing to take positions that are controversial my goal in my writings is that at least once a week to get people to spit up their coffee with something i've written because the worst thing you could be is be boring and not take controversial positions because nobody will read you and I'm out of business.
0: I would guess you're not taking controversial just to be controversial. I think it's not to take arbitrary positions. It's to express yourself, even if controversial.
1: Yes. I I will say that I I deliberately seek to find things that are one, controversial, and two, might surprise people. So I'll just give you an example of Something I sent out to my political email list a couple of days ago. Trump did an interview that was almost an hour long with some podcasters that I'd never heard of before and I can't even remember their name, but they're a bunch of young, couple young guys and their audiences, the Joe Rogan audience of young male, whatever. And they just sat there and interviewed Trump for an hour, and it was a complete puff piece. And Trump ranted about the stolen election and all his usual stuff. There was nothing particularly interesting about this interview, but YouTube took it off. And they took it off because Trump claimed for the 10 millionth time that the election was stolen. And that violates YouTube's terms of service. Mm -hmm. And I sent an email out with a link to where you could find the interview on Spotify and said, it may surprise you to read that I think YouTube made the wrong decision here, because of course Trump was spouting off lies about the election, but every single time he speaks publicly... He tells this, like, you shouldn't be removed. So that was the kind of thing that I knew would make my liberal readers spit up their coffee. But it's a fine balance. Like, I don't deliberately go out there and say silly things that I don't believe in. But it's always, I think it makes me more interesting and credible. And it's not just a question of how many people are on your email list. It's what's your open rate? What's your engagement rate? Okay, because I get a million emails that I never read. And so um, what I'm looking for is not just to build the number of readers, but the engagement and credi- engagement of my readers and building credibility where they where I will go against the grain in what my normal knee-jerk reaction would be.
0: So what do you think of someone who, the people you're calling fucking, someone who reads RFK Jr. And it's this is, what do you think of them? You said the fucking idiot. That's probably joking, but probably serious.
1: Well, you saw in my follow-up to him, this is what I said is, and this is a guy I like a lot and I like hanging out with him. He's a very good guy. And actually, he's someone I met volunteering at the Samaritan's Purse Hospital in Central Park in the very early days of COVID. We were out there working together 12 hours a day, putting up a hospital. Mm -hmm. So a good guy with a good heart. He's, in fact, the one who invited me over the first day that turned into 3 months of 12-hour days over there helping build and run this hospital and so i consider him a good friend and he's a super smart guy and the fact that he believes not just about vaccines but a bunch of other conspiracy theory stuff and the stuff he sends me i can see that what i think it's very it's scary and sobering to me because it's you, i treat my brain Like, I would never knowingly download a virus onto my computer just to see, just so my computer can experience the full breadth of whatever, right? No, a virus onto your computer is just going to wreck your hard drive. Similarly, I can see how even really smart people, and by the way, RFK Jr., for example, is a super high IQ guy. Like, his family is beside themselves at how he's out there and gone crazy on this vaccine stuff but they acknowledge that he may be the most gifted politician in a family full of gifted politicians, right? Like, he's clearly a smart and in many ways gifted guy. But he, by opening his mind to poison, he's turned his brain to mush in this particular area. And I think that's one of the big challenges any human being, but particularly any thoughtful person who wants to read of diversity of opinions and test acknowledged facts or widely believed facts. That's fine. But there's a line there where you cross a line into you're ingesting rat poison and destroying your brain. And you can get sucked down rabbit holes that can you read people who get who fall for these QAnon theories and stuff like that, where it destroys their life. Look at the people on January 6th invading Congress, attacking Congress, because that's a those people would be exhibit A of people whose minds have been brains have been turned to mush because of the quote I'm putting quotes around the word news sources that they allowed to poison their brain.
0: You're saying it's like a virus, but it makes me think of prions, with a slightly different mechanism of how they you can't stop them. And so Now, there's another class that I'm curious your thoughts of, which is people who don't know and don't care. And no matter what you say to them, they're like, look, I'm busy. But they can still get the virus and spread it too, the COVID.
1: Sure. And even the people who don't engage, there's enough noise out there. The anti-vaxxers have created enough noise that even the disengaged people are, I don't really have time to engage, but... I've seen lots of things on Facebook and elsewhere that people are dying from taking the vaccine and or it's not very effective. So questioning both the safety and the efficacy. And you know what? So the status quo bias of human beings is a very powerful thing. The status quo is, look, I feel fine today and I'm not vaccinated and I'm not age 80 or whatever. And so the sort of status quo bias is is to stay unvaccinated, right? That's the damage that these anti-vaxxers have done is they don't even have to be super compelling or persuasive. They just have to muddy the waters enough that a certain percentage of people who aren't particularly engaged are just going to be like, you know, I'm just not going to get it done. And and right now, for example, look at what's happening in Hong Kong. I just sent, I don't know if you saw the email I sent out to my... Yeah,
0: those those are some crazy, that was unbelievable.
1: Right now, Hong Kong, the worst place in the world in terms of COVID deaths for a very short period of time was New York City at the beginning of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. where we had 750 people dying every day in this city. Um, I think it peaked for one day above a thousand, but the seven-day average maxed out 750 people a day per day. We're dying right now in Hong Kong, about the same size city. It's 250 people a day, which is, okay, it's only one third of what New York was a couple years ago. On the other hand, it's higher than any country has ever hit. So right now in Hong Kong, here we are, where in the United States, the pandemic is over, right? We're in the runoff. It's become endemic, right? By the way, another controversial idea, uh, I was quite early on, two months ago. I said that Omicron is actually great news. It spells the end of the pandemic. It is now an endemic. And you know what? For once, I agree with Ron DeSantis. We should be getting rid of the mask and vaccine mandates and just treat COVID going forward as if we had an outbreak of the seasonal flu. Which means, by the way, if nursing home workers, for example, should be required to be vaccinated, for COVID because they're interacting with elderly people who are very vulnerable to COVID even now, just like they should be required to get the flu vaccine in a particularly bad flu season, right? In other words, but, but that's how we should be thinking about it. So, boy, I got a lot of flack for that. And two months in anyway, I've been proven very right. And in fact, I think a month or two too late, but pretty much even in the blue states now, they're lifting all the mask and vaccine mandates pretty quickly. So I lost my train of thought where I was talking about the folks getting vaccinated. Yeah, oh, what's happening in Hong Kong? So how you would think that in a very authorit hong Kong really is China now. In a very authoritarian society where people, by the way, in Asia, long before COVID wore masks a lot, right? You would have thought that every single person in Hong Kong would be vaccinated. And it turns out 50% of their 80-plus-year-olds are not vaccinated. And that's in part because of this complacency. The government didn't enforce it or really push it. And turns out the elderly in Hong Kong fell prey to all this disinformation stuff. And that's part of it. And the other part of it is because they had a zero COVID policy, almost nobody in Hong Kong, so there's no prior immunity in Hong Kong. Whereas in New York, we can unlock because one, we have a much higher vaccination rate. But two... Anyone who's not vaccinated has probably already had COVID anyway, which is a very effective form of vaccination. New York is in great shape, and Hong Kong's absolutely getting clobbered right now because they were complacent, because they didn't have any COVID. So the people didn't get vaccinated, the government didn't push it, and now even a milder strain of COVID, the Omicron virus, is resulting in a horrific death toll, and the Chinese are are scrambling in Hong Kong, but I think they're also very worried that Hong Kong today, Shanghai or Beijing, or they have a hundred cities that are as densely packed as Hong Kong in China. The Chinese, this zero COVID policy will not work with when you've got a strain that's as transmissible as Omicron. So I think, I hope China is, is smart enough to pivot quickly.
0: I'm reading that ignorance is not an excuse. It's in matters of public health, in, matter, in matters where, I mean, if you're going to, I don't know, pay taxes, and no one's affected but you, I guess, technically, but whatever. But if it's a virus that can spread, it's a different story. It's a social issue. Yeah,
1: look, I guess I'm a believer in good government, and we have long had vaccine mandates for many children going into school, in most states anyway, have to have measles, mumps, rubella shots, et cetera, et cetera. And that didn't require, like, prior to COVID, I'm not aware of anybody who was out there doing a lot of research and stuff. You had this little fringe anti vax group, which interestingly was more on the political far left than far. If you think about the, it was the soup, it was in the super progressive Montessori schools where kids weren't, where parents weren't having their kids get vaccinated right to go to school but it was really a very small fringe. The government determined these vaccines were safe and it was important for the community good to have everybody vaccinated. And pretty much everybody did get vaccinated, certainly enough to get well over some sort of herd immunity threshold. And with these COVID vaccines, which have been, I call them the miraculous Trump vaccines, because I'll give Trump credit for it. Everybody debates and my lefty friends get mad at me every time I call them the miraculous Trump vaccines. But I'm like, hey, folks, we're trying to get people on the political right to take these vaccines. So let's give it the name of their guy. Give him all the credit. And by the way, to his credit, he's out there promoting his vaccines and taking credit for it. So I'm just like, look, listen to your guy. Uh, I'm willing to call him the give him call them the miraculous Trump vaccines because that persuades some of my
0: readers. So are you picking up on the pat on the in the parallel that I'm drawing that I described in the email of the environment and sustainability and there are plenty of people out there who are just like, look, COVID, I got a lot of, I got other stuff that I'm doing. I don't have any more issues.
1: Yeah. Well, I wonder one of the parallels certainly is the whole issue about climate change and global warming and that kind of thing, where there's been enough of a fringe group of people out there that have muddied the waters enough that, and it's all, of course, become now highly politicized that it's making big progress on this, very difficult. So it's not quite the same as like you and I going out picking up trash in the park. But I think there are a lot of parallels. And by the way, the same people spreading the disinformation mm-hmm. to the same audience who is receptive to this kind of disinformation, it's the same playbook.
0: So has my interaction with you gotten you thinking?
1: Yes. I can't say I've made many changes to my life yet like i'm not willing to go off the grid off the power grid for example or not take flights in fact <laughs> if you saw my travel schedule over the last four weeks and coming up for the next two weeks I, i've been on a plane like nonstop.
0: yeah sorry to interrupt but he's you i have quotes i've been pulling quotes through your emails and like trying to decide if i'm going to quote you in my book only with your permission i would do it but uh Examples of people that I know who are like it's really crazy to sit in a world and read the headlines, make the connection to behavior and see it happening. It's to me, I don't know how this is going to sound to you, but I feel like it's like I'm, I'm sitting there. If I translate it into the COVID world, it's like watching, say, someone with COVID planning a party, coughing all over the place, no masks. And throwing in some AIDS and having unprotected sex, too. And that's what it looks like to me.
1: And you're referring just specifically to the number of flights I, I take.
0: The flights, the... But it's not the number of flights. See, that what I work on is leadership. So what one person does is if Bill Gates has a party and without a mask or, say, in the height of the pandemic... And he he invites 200 people over. Still, 200 people is not that many people. But it's Bill Gates. He spoke about this. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone pays attention to him. Now, in his case, so his behavior is much more meaningful than just the numbers that he does. Or here's the way I've been putting it lately. Here's something that people don't realize. is that I think that living sustainably, my personal experience has been that it improves my life. More fun, more freedom, more joy, more family connection, things like that. Despite my thinking would be the opposite. The reason to stop... Or if someone's addicted to something, say heroin, the reason to stop taking heroin is not necessarily to stop the global trade. It's to improve your own life. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do want to stop the trade, you're not going to be able to do it if you are still addicted. So you have to cut your addiction in order to do that. But the reason to do it is for your own life. And... Now, from a leadership perspective, also, if I want to lead others, I have to live by the value. I think it's impossible to lead someone to do the opposite of what I'm doing, to live by values, the opposite of what I'm, I'm exhibiting. What no one gets is that it's joyful. Now, you, you referred to before we started recording, he's seen me in my apartment, I have these solar panels that if you read my blog, you'll see them like trying to go off grid for a month to see if I can pull it off. And that I I understand that from the mainstream perspective, that's pretty far off. Not many Americans are off the grid. But- from my perspective, it's just the latest in a long series of little steps, each of which led to the next step. None of which did I anticipate would lead to where I am. And in fact, if someone had said, "Josh, here's what you should do," and said exactly at the beginning, said, "This is exactly what you should do," I would not do it because it would be too complicated. I'd be like, "Ah, that's, I don't want to get extreme like that."
1: It's been lots of little steps, not one or two giant leaps.
0: Right, and each step was itself at the beginning. If I go without packaged food in New York, am I not giving up the best food around? I, I can't trust my own cooking. It's not, I can cook. We grew up cooking in my house, but it was always like boxed pasta. And I wasn't cooking from scratch. And then it turns out I, you know, learn how to cook and my cooking is better. And then same with the flying. I thought like I grew up flying. It's, it's, it was ingrained in my family. My parents met in India. It's like, this is, how could I possibly give this up? And then it turns out it went great. And also before recording, I was pointing out where I, he mentioned my fridge, so I, my fridge is unplugged. That, seems, that would have definitely seemed extreme before. But now I feel like I'm connected with all these cuisines all around the world. It's, it's actually improved my exposure and diversity and cultural exchange through food, but everything the food connects with. Maybe we should segue to what your experience was like.
1: But, well, in a perfect world... You can do what is right in terms of what is better for the environment and sustainability and all. And it's joyful and actually leads to greater happiness in your life and having a richer, fuller, happier life. The areas in which I acknowledge I am bad, I don't think that argument works. It would be my parents and my sister live in Kenya. The only way I can ever see them in person is if either I or they or both get on a plane. I believe that human happiness comes from not just being with other people, but having experiences with other people. So I grew up all over the world. We lived in Tanzania. We lived in Nicaragua. We lived in California. Every single vacation of my life, my parents were both teachers. So we had large blocks the entire summer. We would hop in our Volkswagen camper and drive cross country. So I've driven across this country camping along the way my entire childhood every summer. That's what we would spend a month or two doing. So travel and seeing the world and experiencing new people, new cultures, new geographies, seeing the national parks and the equivalent around the world, the U.S. national parks and all, is just something that is so much a part of my history and my present. Two days from now, I'm heading to Rwanda with my family for a spring break trip. My daughter's on spring break from college, so we schedule it around that. We're burning a lot of fuel Flying to Am- New York, Amsterdam, Kigali, and back, the the four of us. On my deathbed, I don't want to die with any money. I want to die. I want to think back to my life, and the things I will remember most were the experiences like that. Almost all of which involved travel. So I'm not. I care about the environment, and I understand jets burn fuel, but I'm just not going to give that up. And maybe I'll try and make it up in some other portion of my life. But that's not a trade-off I'm willing to make. I think it's really cool and interesting that you've been able to give up air travel uh, for, what, five years now?
0: Yeah, I haven't given up
1: anything. You said give up. When I said, you have not flown. Yes. Okay, you have not flown in five years.
0: Since 2016, yeah. Okay, six years now. Um, March 23rd will be when it begins my seventh year.
1: Interesting. Uh, So you have the, yeah. I think that's great. That's not a sacrifice, it's not a sacrifice. Uh, I'm willing yeah. to make. And uh, so how do I rationalize that?
0: Oh, wait, I'm not going to, I don't want to hear the rationalization. Okay. Okay. I, I won't support that. <laughs> don't want to give any of your listeners any ideas. <laughs> oh, I, it's you. I don't want you to, because you're going to feel like it's something personal, but it's everyone has the same thing. It's.
1: Do you believe in this concept of carbon offsets, where if you're going to pollute over here, you can make up for it over here and offset
0: No. What I know is that that the net effect of that is to increase pollution. The systemic, one flight, one time, that would, if all that happened was, if you only look at one case, Mm -hmm. that you could offset that. But the systemic effect, who promotes this? Delta, American, all the airlines promote this because they know that it will lead to more. What if I, if I
1: calculated the amount of carbon or whatever pollutants being put into the air for every time I took a flight, and then I donated to Nature Conservancy or something that resulted in planting an acre of trees or whatever it is that would absorb that amount? So if I if I took so I would basically double the cost of my travel because because I had to pay for an airline ticket and now I got to donate. To something like just conceptually, is there is is that a reasonable thing, or you can't undo the harm of the of the flying?
0: It is you have lowered the Earth's ability to sustain life, and so what,
1: what if I plant two acres of trees that are going to suck up double the amount? So I would argue, no, I've actually increased the amount of the planet's ability to absorb pollutants and so forth because yeah. I'm going to do a two to one.
0: You're just keeping your addiction going. It's, when you see this as an addiction, you realize the, what addicts will say to keep that thing going. Mm-hmm. They'll say anything, and they believe. They don't really need to believe it, or they don't really need to expect that someone else will believe it. They just have to believe it themselves enough that, until they get their next hit, and then they don't have to think about it again. Yeah.
1: So and, to some extent, if I'm, what I'm hearing from you is, is if I throw a paper bag out my car window when I'm driving and just litter... If I then, an hour later, go pick up two pieces of paper on the side of the road and put them in a trash can, net, there's less litter on the side of the road, but the initial act is simply immoral on its own. It cannot be undone. You should not do that.
0: I don't want to bring morality into it. It, it, It's just lowering the Earth's ability to sustain life. It's killing life. Whether that's good or bad, it's up to other people. People go to war and fight. I'm not saying good or bad, but if you value life, then that's your values. But in the case of oil coming out of the ground, fossil fuels coming out of the ground, if we just look at the greenhouse effect, we could look at plastic, we can look at pollution, all sorts of other things. We can talk about displacing people from their land to get underneath it, to get the oil and things like that. But let's just look at at carbon, because that's what a lot of people look at most. There's a carbon cycle of oil, the creation of oil. So there was living matter that got crushed under all these things, got compressed into oil that stuff is in underground for 100 million years, 10 million years, long time. From the perspective of human beings, it's out of the ecosphere. And it has always been out of the ecosphere because we've only been around for 300,000 years, maybe a million if you count like tool making, but Homo sapiens, 300,000 years. So that has never been in the ecosphere. There's another cycle, which is carbon going into trees and us. And when, we're, when it's in me, it's out of the atmosphere. When I die... And I decompose, my carbon goes back into the atmosphere. So that's trees will live a couple hundred years, humans will live about a hundred years. So that's like a roughly century time scale. So we take something that was never in the ecosphere for our t- intents and int- int- purposes. But let's say it's on a 10 million-year cycle. And I try to fix a 10 million-year cycle with that something that happens every hundred years. I haven't done anything. I've not put only putting it back in the ground permanently, which we have no way of doing. Carbon Capture and sequestration is billions have been thrown at it, and it just does not work. There might be something somewhere way off in the distant future, but nothing relevant to our lifetimes. So these cycles are not related at all. The equivalent, of if you threw something out the window, would be then if you, I can't think of what it would be, something trivial, something inconsequential. It would be more like if you cut down a tree and then picked up a piece of paper. That's, But even that is like, it's not millions of times different. So once the measure of that, with regard to carbon and, pol- and most pollution, it's, it, I can't think of many ways to pollute without burning fossil fuels, nor can I think of any way to use a fossil fuel without polluting. So bring fossil fuels out of the ground. And fossil fuels is not the only thing. Nuclear fusion, these have issues as well. And by the way, if you want solar, if you want wind, you're burning fossil fuels. They require those things. Not like ancient windmill like Cervantes and Don Quixote. But the windmills that we're talking about now to generate meaningful power—that's all depends on fossil fuels. But if you bring fossil fuels out of the ground, that's where it happens. Until there's a way to get it back underground permanently, without a risk within the next million years, or at least on human timescales, thousands of years of it not coming back out. And you have to protect it. You have to make sure that no, one's, if you put it in some liquid or or gas form on the ground, that stuff is probably going to leak out. So that's the measure. Once you, once it's out and flying, I, what got me to, to test my go from my challenge myself to a year without flying was when I was watching this guy speak on, it was at Harvard actually, and he's from Cambridge or Oxford. And he said that flying New York LA round trip is roughly a year's worth of driving. And when I, I knew to look this stuff up for a long time, but I never did. And so this kind of fell in my lap. And I was like, wow, that's way more than I thought. I don't know if, what other people think, but that's when I realized, because I live in Manhattan without a car, I was like, oh, I'm not polluting very much. But I was actually right up there with the average American because of all my flying. And you talked about you're not willing to give it up, all from your perspective. I'm not doing it from my perspective. I am. As it turns out, now I am because of the joy that I found. But the beginning was about the it was a sense of stewardship. In the sense of you're wearing a, a Navy SEAL shirt. And so the call of duty, the sense of service, of stewardship is to me a deeper human... Look, I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything here. My goal in leadership is not to tell people what to do, not to judge, not to impose my values on others. But if there's something in them that... Let's transition to your experience because I think that If I talk about, unless you have something to comment on what I've just been talking.
1: The only thing I'd, look, I hear you and I agree with you. And so, for example, I I live uh, four miles from where we are sitting right now in your apartment. And uh, the quickest way, and easiest way where I could get some reading and some work done was to just hail an Uber and hop on down here. Instead, I hopped on my bike and it was a little chilly and all, a little dangerous biking in the streets of New York. But I think part of the reason that I choose my primary method of transportation, if I'm not walking or jogging or something, is my bike, as opposed to driving my own car or taking an Uber, is for environmental reasons and reducing, particularly New York's, actually this air is pretty clean here now, but it once wasn't, and for the reasons you cite. It's interesting. I actually think if every American adopted my environmental sustainability things that I do, we would be... And then as another step to, the, to where you are, I think we get 80% of where we'd want to go if people just get to where I am. And then the or last 20% or just the things I do to just generally do less driving. And
0: You're not counting kind the of flying.
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. Even if you counted the flying, I'm not convinced that the amount of flying I do every year. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to see I'd have to see the statistics. Like I'm not convinced if you're flying on a if you're flying private, that's another thing. Boy, that's that
0: Especially if you're flying to a COP twenty six meeting.
1: Yes. The environmentalists who fly on their private jets to Davos is sort of the height of hypocrisy. I'm not convinced that if you're just flying in a full aircraft of 150 people, like your share of whatever the emissions are is. You tell me in terms of The amount of carbon being put in the atmosphere and causing climate change and global warming and so forth, any sense of what percentage of that comes from aircraft versus factories versus passenger cars versus trucks and so forth, the other major sources?
0: Yeah, I do know, but before I answer, I'll I'll point out it's not a leadership issue, that's a management issue, but in terms of numbers it's roughly two percent. Okay. But here's a question for you. What percentage of people alive today have flown in an airplane? Hmm.
1: From this, you know, almost eight billion people on Earth, seven point seven billion today, uh, have ever been on an aircraft, yeah. have ever flown, like a, any, have ever flown. in the answer to this,
0: yeah, I'm I mean, gonna I have to look it up to be get exact, but it, roughly
1: somewhere between one and two billion, be my guess. Most people, I would say, in the developed world. So add up all of U.S., Canada, Europe, probably most of Japan. Not most of China, for sure, but not most of India. So, I don't know. That'd be my guess.
0: So, check my numbers, but I I believe it's five percent have ever flown.
1: Five percent, so three. We're talking almost about four hundred million.
0: And if you go to the, no, I think it's something like fifteen twenty percent of Americans have flown. But if you go to people who've flown multiple times or fly multiple times per year, we're like a tiny fraction. So that two percent is really a very small number of people.
1: Yeah. I question those numbers because look, about uh, somewhere between twenty-five and thirty percent of Americans have a passport, which floored me when I first read it because inconceivable to me. But you have to assume that the vast majority of people who are getting a passport are flying somewhere down to Cancun or something like that, right? Now, obviously, it could be people going by land over to Canada, but so you, so I don't believe that only twenty-something percent of Americans have ever been on an airplane per year. I believe per year. I believe.
0: uh yeah, so I don't want to. I haven't looked these up recently. I didn't prepare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the numbers yeah, of people who fly multiple times is yeah. really tiny. Yeah. So it's also an increasing number. F- flying is again, it's from a leadership perspective. To me, it's and also when I said uh, a flight New York L A round trip is years worth of driving. That's per person. That's per passenger, not per flight. The flight is two two hundred times that.
1: Yeah. Now I guess that depends on. Assuming you're on a full aircraft and you're pro rata share of that versus driving in a car by yourself cross country, or are there? Do you are you splitting the fuel costs among a family of four? Let's...
0: I'm not saying it's the, it's the equivalent of driving for a year. So there's big. This is a physicist who is talking. Yeah. So it's like factors of two don't really matter to them, but it's like that scale. So if you drive a car for a year, like commuting every day. I don't know if that's an SUV or if that's a Prius or if that's…
1: The average person drives 10,000 miles a year, let's say, and figure that out in the average car. And the question is carbon emissions. Is that how we're measuring this?
0: That was saying, as I recall, it was warms the globe the equivalent. Interesting. So, multiple flights. So, in the past week for you or the past month for you, you're like… Top 1% of top 1% or top 1%.
1: In a year, I've done more traveling in the past year than most Americans. In, in the past week. In other words, I've flown round trips, Seattle, Miami, Bahamas, and I'm going to Rwanda yeah. next week. So that's all in a two-week period.
0: Yeah. Now, I would, I'm not going to, I'll say this. What you said about family, the necessity to travel in order to see them and things like that. Here's something I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with is that we grew up in a world with a certain set of values. I grew up with the values that said the more cultures, the better. The more we spread these things, the more communication, the better. Mm-hmm. Now the world changed and our understanding of the world changed. It was plausible when I was a kid. We knew about global warming, but it was plausible to say, yeah, that's not really going to happen. Now that's changed. It's measurable. People may question measurements, but I do not. I mean, I question some. It seems compelling to me. And our understanding of what we're doing has changed. And so I've had to change my values with that. Now, there's a lot of people who... Okay, at one point, New York City did not have... There was pre-Robert Moses, and it did not have all these highways coming into the city. And people didn't commute from all over the place into the city. They built the highways, and people moved away. Moved farther you know, farther to the end of the road so they could commute in. If we were to take down those highways, now they have all these people stranded out there. Mm-hmm. It will take time for them to move back in again. So how do we... If we only look at... The immediate problems, we will just say, let's not change anything. But if we don't change anything, we're just sleepwalking into catastrophe. Yeah. What happens to people who have grown up with one system and the system changed around them?
1: Yeah, because that's, I think you've highlighted, while I was saying how similar the pandemic and misinformation, et cetera, et cetera, is to something like climate change. One massive difference, which makes it so much harder to persuade people to change their ways in terms of climate change for forth is the pandemic within a matter of weeks or certainly a month or two. You can see the impact of people's behavior and it's very clear and quantifiable and scary. Whereas if people drive too much and there's too much carbon in the air and it increases the average temperature around the globe by one degree Celsius, it takes place over a long period of time, and there isn't as, as direct a causational thing to the average person who's not really engaged on this issue. They're like, okay, so what if it's one degree warmer, right? Like they, and then you see hurricanes and extreme weather events and fires and floods and so forth. And again, but again, it's hard. I think people generally have the idea that okay, human behavior is causing this but it's taking place over decades and the causal links aren't as obvious that it allows people to be out there in denial about it and it makes it harder to persuade people to give up things
0: it's even more so that to not get vaccinated doesn't really improve your life a whole lot whereas
1: if you believe that by the way for 99 out of 100 people who don't get sick anyway
0: and if you believe that flying is valuable, or if you enjoy takeout, then getting takeout improves your life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Of course, the pollution, the plastic containers are going to be there for a thousand years, five hundred years to a thousand years. Mm-hmm. You improve your life, but so it's what you're saying. Plus, yeah. you improve your life exactly. by by continuing exactly. what you're doing before. Exactly. So that I run the risk. A lot of people hear this podcast and they think, "Josh, it's so cool that you get people to do these little things." Mm-hmm. It's not big little. It's intrinsic extrinsic. Mm-hmm. if I can connect with someone, if I can help someone connect a value of theirs to an action that they can act on that value, that's to me, the definition of improving life to act on a value, a value, good, bad. If you have more good in your life, then now some people don't do it. Some people don't come up with anything. Some people start and they realize when I was talking to Josh, it sounded interesting, but what I'm actually doing, it's not that interesting. Mm-hmm. But by and large, most people do something. Now, when someone listens, they might not hear The connection from that person's value to that person's actions because they don't feel the thing. If someone describes their equivalent of my sledding hill, Mm -hmm. they might think, oh, sledding hill's nice. But for me, my sledding hill is my heart. It's like I grew up there. So when I'm acting on that, it's very meaningful for me. And that gives me this connection. If if I do it effectively, when someone shares a value of theirs about their connection with nature and they act on that value, that connects them more with nature. Now, there's something to protect, there's something to save, there's something to act on. And if it's meaningful, they, they might do it again. And each time they do it, it's more of an experience. And in my experience, having done this a lot, I've changed my life, changed my identity in a way that I'm very happy about. And I'm getting all, many of the things so far, all the things that I thought I would sacrifice, I've not sacrificed, which is why I bristle so much when someone says, you, You'll sacrifice this. I'm like, It, I can't say no, because I was thinking that at the beginning. I did think I'm taking one for the team. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really don't want to motivate or even sound like I'm motivating people to like do this one little thing. Because if you, if I tell you avoid straws or don't eat meat or even don't fly and you do it, I guarantee that a week from now, you're not going to see any difference in the world. And you're probably going to be like, the waiter brought the straws out, the cup with straws. I was like, can you take them back? And the waiter's like, I'm just going to throw them out. He right, because I've already so, opened the yeah. paper top on it. Yeah. So I just inconvenience myself. I embarrass myself in front of my friends. The waiter is all awkward. And the world is exactly the same. I've just, I would have helped you prove to yourself right. that what you do doesn't matter. That's
1: We're a just- good idea, by the way. I don't care about straws. So you've just given me an idea. No more straws at restaurants. Because I remember we were here last time podcasting. I was like, give me some ideas. And you're like, no, no, no. It's got to come from within. (laughs) And I was like, dude, give me some ideas. (laughs) So you've just given me one one more good idea.
0: Yeah, people talk to me here. If you get into this, you will find people will talk to you about straws, toilet paper, toothbrushes, toothpaste. This is like (laughs) people get really... But I think it's if you really want to do something and you know that it's going to hurt people. You will, whatever it takes to get that cognitive dissonance out of your head, you'll go for it. You'll be like, look, I'm working on the straws thing. Once I figure straw things out, then I can do everything else. Or talk to, watch an interview with someone on meth and how, what they're doing, it's not that bad. It's, that's in their minds. It's not that bad. And then talk to someone about one of these issues, the environment, or it could also be the, the anti-vax stuff. They're just drawn into it and they don't want to let go. And I was there. I flew around a lot and I was like, I knew I could look it up, but I didn't want to look it up. It hit me without my trying to look it up about that number, about that comparison. And I was very happy to, the moment, I don't know if I told you when that week when I was going, the first week without w- avoiding packaged food, and I made it the first couple of days. Just I, I allowed myself to finish what was in my cupboards, so I had a couple of days worth of food, and it was a packaged food. But I wasn't buying anything new. So then I go to the store, and I, when I walk in the store, I walk to the I'm just like an autopilot, and I go to the aisle where I normally buy food, where I start. And I look up, and where I would always see food before, I now see the boxes and the jars and the cans and the rubber bands and the stickers, and I'm thinking I know how to cook, but I don't know, I don't know what to do. I got Ivy League degrees out the wazoo, and I can't live without hurting people. I felt helpless. I felt guilty and shameful, and stupid, and like guilty of like hurting people. And then, so like a couple days within, one of the things I did, I I had already shopped in the bulk section, bring my own bags, so I, I was fine to bring my own bag. So in the bulk section, I would normally get nuts and seeds and dried fruit. I had dried beans. So I got dried beans for the first time in my life. And this is something I'm not proud of at all, that in my 40s was the first time I boiled beans on the stove. And I was in the moment, I was like, yeah, this is really cool. Also thinking, talking about how many people haven't flown, (laughs) how many people haven't gone without cooking beans. It's like a pretty basic thing that I boiled rice on the stove and pasta, but not beans. So then I got the rice cooker. It turns out I can cook beans in the rice cooker. Then I went to the pressure cooker. And uh, there's this whole process of joyful discovery. The stuff about the family is a pretty big deal. My sister and her husband, my two nephews, in they're in the Peace Corps. They met in the Peace Corps and they're in the State Department. They've lived all over. Right now in New Zealand, before that, they were in Fiji. Before that, I think it was not Rwanda, Kenya. I forget.
1: And New Zealand's so beautiful, man. You gotta don't tell anybody, but just hop a flight to Auckland. I'm gonna sail there. <laughs> you say you're gonna drive to LA and sail.
0: I'm gonna ride my bike to LA and sail. <laughs> That's right. Or go through the canal. But step one is Europe. I got a standing invitation to visit Machai Viravadha. Long-time listeners so let not know who he is, and I can give you links if you want. He's invited me to visit my favorite food in the world is Thai food in Thailand. And so I really wanna get there. About and, Italian food in Italy. Yeah but not Thai food in Thailand. I mean, Thai food in Thailand is, but and
1: That's like top of the pecking order and British food in Britain is like the bottom of the barrel, right?
0: <laughs> not, yeah, it's not a big fan of it, but um, not the worst thing in the world. I think it's changed a lot over the, the it's had a lot of immigration. It's changed it in the past couple of decades. And this is me showing about myself. None of this did I care about a while ago, maybe 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. Fusion was the answer in my great efficiency. Fusion, whatever it was, is government's corporations, not me. I could go on. I've gone on for a while.
1: Should we pivot and I'll tell you, update you on my my pledge from last time?
0: Yeah, so let me begin by asking you, what when I asked you what does the environment mean to you, do you remember what that connection was, what your sledding hill was? Or what, what was your connection to the environment?
1: I'm not sure if this is the right answer, but I'm thinking that what we're talking about was this is just picking up trash and cleaning things up and how I did that when I went out walking my dog in Central Park. And it was something we did together when we first met out in Washington Square Park where there was no shortage of trash to pick up there.
0: And I, now I have to say an aside. I think about you all the time because when I see them dealing drugs, I think of you the first time I've ever seen it. It's now that spring is coming. In the winter, there's a lot less. But now it's and it's really... It's a drug den. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One of the major areas I'm involved with is criminal justice reform. And how do you, what should the police be doing with an open air drug market?
0: Now, I propose tabling that. Yes. So there's pickup up litter. And there's your daughters, I think I remember, in Central Park. Your daughters, slides. Oh, yeah.
1: We go sledding and biking. And I play tennis. Uh, I live up up on the northern part of the park where they have the 26 outdoor courts. There are 30. And my daughters all played soccer games out there. That part of the park, we live, my apartment is directly across the street from Central Park on Fifth Avenue. So that that place is near and dear to my heart. And a dozen years ago, we got our first dog. And eight months ago, we got our second dog. My wife and I are always out there walking the dogs.
0: Picking up other dogs litter.
1: Yeah, and it started with it just... When I was out there with a poop bag cleaning up my own dog's poop, if I saw some other dogs poop out there that someone was gonna step in or something, I'd start picking that up and that then led to just generally picking up any trash mm-hmm. as we walked around the loop, the small loop we usually walk. But I confessed that I didn't do that anywhere else in the city or at any other time of day, when I was just out there it was only when I was out there walking the dogs and had a plastic bag, the poop bag with me that I would that whether or not I was cleaning up my own dog's poop, if I saw trash and I wasn't right near a trash can, I would open up a poop bag and make it just a trash bag. Mm-hmm. So what I decided to do was, as I folded up one of the poop bags, and I don't carry a wallet anymore, but on my I have a cell phone case that has a place for a credit card and my driver's license and a folded up twenty dollar bill. Mm-hmm. So I stuck a doggy poop bag that it is part of my cell phone case. So now I have one with me 24-7 mm-hmm. so that now I can pick up trash wherever I am and have a little trash bag with me. And uh, so I am pleased to say that I had a moment of uh, almost agonizing. I was going to take a subway a couple weeks ago and on the subway platform, there were some benches and on one of the benches, somebody had eaten some chicken, some fried chicken and had left the bones with, with chicken hanging off of it. Uh-huh. And there, there were a bunch of pieces of chewed chicken bones sitting there on one of the benches. And it was just nasty looking. And looking it was uh, yes, yeah. and it was just offensive to look at. And I had a minute before the train came. And so I pulled out my, my poop bag. Uh-huh. And I went over there and I picked up the, the chicken bones and sealed it all up and threw it in the trash. And felt like I was a good citizen that day. Did you think of uh, me? Yes, I did. Oh. This was the first time I had used it now. What's interesting is that just yesterday, it was a very windy, stormy day here, and I was biking down Fifth Avenue, and the metal trash cans that are on every corner of Fifth Avenue, on every street corner going south, uh, a number of them were tipped over in the road. And I'm not sure whether it was very gusty, so it was probably winds, though I have seen cases of homeless people or whatever just knocking trash cans over. I don't know, but there were, but there were three or four on the way down. And I was cruising along, going down to get my shiatsu massage down on uh, 57th Street. And, but I pulled over with my bike. Uh-huh. I held my bike with one hand, grabbed the trash can with the other, pulled it back. And I did that three or four times, going down Fifth Avenue. So I didn't need my poop bag for that. But felt that wasn't exactly... It. There was no trash on... I would have picked that up, I suppose, as well. But it was just... It was the same idea. So I am definitely more conscious of trying to do more of something. And it's like what you talked about earlier, where you didn't do it all at once. You took like incremental steps and each step was maybe a little bit of a sacrifice or whatever, but you felt really good about it. And then it became something joyful. I feel the same way, taking a few more incremental steps from where I started, which was doing none of this, you know, a few years ago.
0: All right, you mentioned joy. What what was the emotional journey of this? From the beginning, like when you first committed to it to, it sounds like you didn't do that much at the beginning, but then it started picking up after the first experience.
1: Yeah, it's easy. I think a lot of people, they look at all the trash in New York City and it's what difference does it make if you pick up a few pieces or whatever? There's almost a feeling of overwhelming helplessness or whatever, but it's just something that offends me, particularly seeing dog poop out like on a sidewalk where someone's going to step in it. And I've stepped in it enough times and it was just, it's sort of one of my daughters won't pick up our own dog's poop. She just thinks the whole concept of picking up dog poop is gross. I must say, uh, picking up other dog's poop makes me cringe a little bit. But I'm like, what's the difference between, you know, oh, my loving Rosie and Phoebe. I'm perfectly happy to clean up their poop, but some other dog's poop is somehow disgusting. No, it's just dog poop. Dog poop is dog poop. And this is going to be a funny podcast, right? How many podcasts talk about dog poop? But the same thing, just seeing trash where people were eating on the bench and you could just see they threw their coffee cup behind the bench. It just offends me. And and then thinking, okay, what kind of Okay, it's a good thing to do karma-wise or whatever to clean up trash, but only in my neighborhood, only within 200 yards of my apartment. That's a little selfish, right? Like I should care about trash in other places. Like I said, there's this incrementalism where look, on my bike ride down here which took about half an hour, if I had stopped my bike every time I saw a piece of trash, I'd still be out there. So you ha- you have to have limits. I'm a little bit of a zealot now, I must say, but look, picking up, setting those big metal trash containers that were out on Fifth Avenue and just setting them up and putting them back on the corner, cars could could hit that. It could be dangerous. So, at least for the big things like that, I, I'll stop. I must say it's a little bit of a game. Like, I try and I, I sort of look behind the benches now, trying to find the cups that people tossed back there, thinking nobody would see them or notice mm-hmm. them, right?
0: Do you also, do, here's my little, one of my many games in this is I want to look like I'm not trying to get attention, but have people see me yeah. so that they, if I look like I'm trying to get them to see, then they're right. It's, Here's the interesting
1: question, work. which is if nobody saw you, would you still do it? Okay. That's the question of a moral action, right? Is if you're doing it for the right reasons.
0: I can't speak to the morality of it, but I'm, I pick up now. Yes. I can't stop myself. I, yes. Excuse. I'm, yeah I'm just to pick it up and yeah. someone for, it for me
1: it's internal and I would say once a month somebody says, hey good job or they say something complimentary well, that was a nice thing to do whatever and I say thank you and all but and that feels good I guess and I'd like to model good behavior for other people because while one person doing this doesn't really make much of a difference, if every person, were to do it. So if I can inspire 10 more people to do it or 100 more people to do it, to some extent, that's why I create these big email lists to encourage other people to get involved with the things I care about. What's interesting, though, is, is I have never once written or taken a picture of or anything publicized any of the picking up other dogs poop or whatever. I think maybe in one sentence in in my book, uh, The Art of Playing Defense, i uh, where I talk about, I think it may be in the context of developing good habits. Mm-hmm. And one of the most profound things I've ever heard that has changed my life the most was something Warren Buffett said, I first heard him say probably 30 years ago. And he said, the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. Mm-hmm. And his point is that they're just the day-to-day little habits about how you treat other people, about Whether you exercise, about what you eat, whether you smoke, how you drive your car, all the little habits over the course of one day or one week or one month make absolutely no difference. They're undetectable. But over a long period of time, they're the only thing that matter. They completely define who you are.
0: That's why it's so weird when people call me extreme to me, Mm -hmm. because I'm like, no one feels extreme themselves, right? Like, Trump doesn't think he's You
1: don't like acknowledge extreme. that you're extreme, that you're a
0: zealot? No, I don't feel like... Zealot to me implies a self-righteousness or a morality to it. A zealot is just someone who's super, super
1: passionate about anything. R- a Religion, team? about the Yankees.
0: I'm definitely enthusiastic.
1: Enthusiastic is top 5%. A zealot is top one-tenth of 1%. You are a zealot by that well, definition in this particular area.
0: I can see how i look that way from other people's perspectives because they're seeing me as doing something that takes effort, but I'm seeing myself as doing something that's fun. So, if you want to say I'm a zealot for fun, mm-hmm. but then I'm, I think I'm in the same group as a lot of other people, I think most people are zealots for something. From my perspective, someone who gets takeout every, like someone who gets takeout all the time mm-hmm. would be a zealot. They're putting money into it, I'm saving money. People who watch... Like, I don't have a TV here. Mm -hmm. So when people talking about Game of Thrones and all the stuff that they watch, I'm like, you're putting a lot of work into that. Mm -hmm. And so they say, I'm doing my burpees. So I've spent zero money on burpees. Right. I spend the... But you're a burpee zealot. How many
1: people on earth have done six... One, have done 60,000 burpees or whatever, but two, have tracked it?
0: That's easy. I know how many I do every day. But from another perspective, there's a certain level of fitness that I'm not willing to go below. If... Burpees are the most efficient exercise. I'm doing the least work to be at this level of fitness. Everyone else is working more than me. I'm not willing to sacrifice my own fitness. That's other people can value different things, but that's am I fitness zealot? I'm not you're probably more fit than I am.
1: Yeah. I'm pretty close. Look, I am an adrenaline. In other words, I guess I'm comfortable with saying in some areas, absolutely. I'm a zealot about improving public I've spent 30 years now since I was one of the founders of Teach for America trying to improve public education in this country. And I've spent in ungodly amounts of hours on it. I've put together Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, his documentary and his slide presentation on the environment. I saw that and said, I need to do that for education reform. And I spent over a year putting together a 250 slide presentation, which was made into a documentary, which was the ed reform version of that is called A Right Denied. And any of your viewers, any of your listeners who want to just Google Whitney Tilson, A Right Denied, and you can watch the documentary and watch the slide presentation. But yeah, I'm a zealot in that area and I'm proud of it.
0: Yeah. Like I own it. There's, I'm going to read you a quote. Here's what I think of myself as. I think of myself as, this is one of my, this is my all-time favorite quote. Martha Graham. Do you know Martha Graham? The dancer. She's the Picasso of dance, she's often called. The dancer is realistic. His craft teaches him to be. Either the foot is pointed or it is not. No amount of dreaming will point it for you. This requires discipline, not drill, not something imposed from without, but discipline imposed by you yourself upon yourself. Your goal is freedom, but freedom may only be achieved through discipline. In the studio, you learn to conform, to submit yourself to the demands of your craft, so that you may finally be free. And when a dancer is at the peak of his power, he has two lovely, powerful, perishable things. One is spontaneity, but is something arrived at over years and years of training. It is not a mere chance. The other is simplicity, but is also, but that is also a different simplicity. It's the state of complete simplicity, counting no less than everything. In this regard, I consider myself an artist. Mm-hmm. This is to me a performance art. As what I would call leadership as well is, so yeah, I'm in the way that a painter will meticulously get the brushstroke down perfectly in yes. the composition. You've got to sketch and sketch until you get yes. the composition. That I agree with. I, I think I, this is to me is an art,
1: and right, it's a level of discipline and commitment to something you care about that is that you take that to a degree that only a very small fraction, under 1% of people do in any area. And I understand the word zealot has a pejorative element to it, because the word prior to zealot in most people's minds is religious, a religious zealot, i.e.
0: Yeah, that's where the morality felt like it was a part of it.
1: Yeah, to me... Yeah. So I understand you might not embrace that word, but, but the way I think about it, which isn't as pejorative, there are, there are many things. There, there are a half dozen things I'm super zealous about.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one last question about the picking up litter. Has it affected your relationships, either with people that you know or people you don't know? Not at all,
1: because I never, ever talk about it. So the only person who's ever seen me do this um, is my wife other than a couple random people walking by in Central Park, but who never see me again and I never see them again. And you know what? She's now, I've sucked her in, not by encouraging her to do it or anything like that, but she said, uh, she over time, and it didn't happen immediately, it didn't happen for, she would never touch another dog's poop, for example, Mm -hmm. never pick up litter. And then she just started to do it. And she, would, she came home. Oh, I was out walking the dogs. And I cleaned up some other dog's poop. I was like,
0: that's great. That's from picking up litter before this exercise.
1: Oh, yeah. This, yeah. Oh, you, you, were you asking specifically since our last conversation? Yeah. Has it affected anyone else or whatever? No, because the only thing I'm doing uh, differently is I'm picking up more litter and, and doing stuff outside of my prior normal dog walking routine where my wife is with me. So nobody else has seen anything else I've done, nor have I talked about it. I'm trying to think whether I mentioned to my wife, hey, I just had this funny conversation with this zealot named Josh, my new BFF. And she's aware that I'm carrying a poop bag in my phone case now, which I think she thinks is pretty funny. I would like to think that I can tell you for sure that getting a dog and going out walking the dog and now dogs we now have two dogs with my wife has been very good for our marriage and our relationship it's just a we're both super busy people and even when we're home together and our offices are adjacent to each other and i can hear the zoom call she's on and she can hear if i'm on the phone we don't even communicate like i'm typing her a text and she types me a text even though we're and yeah. We can't see each other, but we're six feet apart. So having that time outdoors in a beautiful central park or whatever with the two dogs that we love and sort of running around chasing after the dogs and cleaning up after them and, and now picking up trash together and so forth, it's been good for us.
0: I'm torn now. We're getting close to an hour and 20 minutes, and I thought it would be less than an hour. Yeah, I know. Because before we started recording, he's like, how long is this going to be? I was, like, I, I
1: was like, we don't have much to talk about
0: it. Yeah, you're like, not much going on. <laughs> And both of us can be talkers. Yes.
1: My mom calls it the gift of gab. Playing on with Diarrhea the idea. of the
0: mouth. I'm <laughs> planning on with the idea of wrapping it up, but I'm also thinking about a couple other things. One is, would you be willing to come back again and continue the conversation? And the other is also, you talked about a newly discovered joy that you like, if I'm reading you Right. And would you care to up the ante and, and think of something new to do?
1: I've already, you've already given me. Now, this doesn't count because you gave me the idea, but no more straws.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. I like that. I'm, I feel heart warmed. It warms my heart that I, I would do something not asking you, but it would inspire you anyway.
1: Yeah, I don't usually use straws anyway, so it's not that big a sacrifice. But it would I would have to pay attention when I'm ordering in a restaurant to mm-hmm. say please don't bring a straw because normally they bring a straw and I just put it down on the table, but it goes in the trash. So it'll take a little extra effort, but that's certainly not really a sacrifice. So upping the ante, look, one simple thing is I have carried around that poop bag in my phone for the past six weeks or so since we last talked, and I've only used it a couple times, even though I've seen plenty of trash. So I now, other than that picking up, the only one I can really remember is picking up those nasty chicken bones down on the subway. But to really start doing more of that is something like, I almost felt a little guilty coming down here to talk to you today because, well, I committed to do this and I carry around the poop bag with me so I now have the tool to do more cleaning up, but I really haven't done that much more of it. So I'd certainly, let's talk more than six weeks from now and see how this plays out, but happy to come back. And certainly, other than the, I like your straw idea, doing a little bit more cleaning up of litter, I'm afraid I can't tell you that I'm going to be traveling less.
0: The... First tip of the hat of coming down despite feeling like I don't have much to say because the way I usually say it is that that's one of the reasons I like to have leaders on is because leaders have shared their vulnerabilities before and they realize this is a sign of strength, not weakness. And it's important for people to hear. It's not just like, oh, I changed this and everything's fine or everything was easy. This isn't Disney and it's hard and we relapse and things like that. So thank you for sharing that it wasn't easy or wasn't a slam dunk to come down here. And yeah, I think if you're I also think that there's a conversation going on here that can only arise from someone calling someone a fuckhead or something or whatever it was. Fucking idiot. <laughs> a fucking idiot. Yeah. This derives, by the way, from the theme
1: of my book, The Art of Playing Defense, and actually a commencement address I gave at the middle school I went to called Eagle Brook, a private school up in Western Mass. Which is my number one immutable law of the universe, which is if you are a dumbass, there will be consequences. And I actually used the word dumbass in the commencement address and everyone laughed. And I said, I'm pretty sure I'm the only commencement speaker in history who's ever used the word dumbass. Uh-huh. And I said, and so the challenge for any commencement speaker is to be both say things that say something that is both memorable and meaningful. So I said, I'm sure using the word that word is going to make this memorable. Oh yeah, he was the guy who spoke at my eighth grade graduation, or ninth grade in this case, graduation. But I said, let me tell you why I think it's meaningful. And it's what I've always been preaching to my daughters growing up, is, which is just generally, actions have consequences, and you should think carefully about the things you say and do, because if you make bad choices and bad judgments i.e. if you are a dumbass, there will be consequences. So this riff to my friend about your being a fucking idiot was just how I speak to my friends as opposed to my children. I don't tell my children, don't be a fucking idiot. I'll tell my friends that. But it's all part of both both. The big decisions, like to get vaccinated or not, and the little things, the habits, you know, about don't sit there and guzzle coke and sit on the sofa all day, or that those are habits that aren't necessarily one big decision, but the the little habits that will kill you, will kill you over a period of time.
0: I'm inclined to leave it there because I think we're going to, in a little over six, something over six weeks, we're going to talk again. And you've got the straws and you've got up in the ante.
1: Yep. Doing more uh, trash pickup on my bike ride home. I'm going to try- find some either trash barrel that's been turned over to put back up or, or some trash to pick up.
0: And then, and I think, careful if I'm wrong, but this is an interesting conversation for you. As well. This is an interesting oh, conversation sure. for me. And this is... Uh, Sure. We're like
1: soulmates. We're both zealots, and like, let's just own it. Zealots, in the best sense of the word, passionately committed to a handful of things we really care about, mm-hmm. and we're such zealots. If you think what defines a religious zealot, not just somebody who prays a lot and goes to church a lot for themselves, they proselytize. They try and persuade other. A, a true religious zealot is someone who wants to persuade every other person on earth to join their religion. That's why I say we're zealots for the things we care about. Because you're here doing a podcast. And I'm out there building these massive email lists and spending huge amounts of time. Not just doing things and learning myself and whatever and writing checks and all the other ways I engage on the issues that I care about. But one of the things I spend the most time about is trying to persuade other people to get engaged.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I got to refine a bit. I'm trying to help people... My definition of leadership or my working working definition most of the time is to help people do what they want to do but haven't figured out how. So it's I'm trying to tap into something that's already inside someone. If it's not there, I got to talk to someone else.
1: Yeah, but look, you are trying to lead by example for sure and your mission is that is a lot of people Will adopt at least some of the things that you're doing and leading by example, because it's only when a lot of people do the things that you're doing that it changes the course of history and the environment. Right?
0: You know, there's a step. There's a prior step, which is it's to change hearts and minds. It's to change culture. Then comes all the other people. Because I'm not trying to coerce, cajole, convince. It's only through intrinsic motivation that I want to work.
1: All you're talking about is is the techniques, but the goal is to get as many people as possible to change their behavior. So you should own that about the goal. I'm very explicit about my goal. My my goal was to get as many people as possible to get vaccinated because it would save lives and the pandemic that's crushing our economy and so forth sooner.
0: Here's one of the ways I think. If, If Skid Row, L.A., I'm from Philadelphia, so I think of Kensington. I don't know if you've seen what's going through right now. But do you know what's... I
1: don't know Philadelphia.
0: Okay, Skid Row, LA. Tents and people addicted and it's garbage everywhere. So say all the people in Skid Row said, you know, it's a big mess here. We've killed all the trees and just litter everywhere. Let's clean it up. And so they go clean it up, but they don't get unaddicted. And the supply keeps coming in. It's going to get messy. It looks like
1: hell a week later.
0: Yeah. Now, some might say, but it takes a long time to kick addiction and, and they can clean immediately. Maybe yes, but you've got to get the addiction. So that's what I'm working on. But So I do want to clean up the neighborhood. I want the people clean up the neighborhood, but I want to help those who want to get unaddicted. That's, it's slightly, I do want to change your behavior, but that's the consequence of the mind. And it's interesting. Like I go back and forth. There are a lot of different
1: ways to try and get people to change their behavior. And one is, is to order people if you're in a position of authority, right? You're the Chinese government. You can just set order everyone to get tested or everyone to get vaccinated. But the best way is to, I think, the way you're doing it, which is almost the opposite extreme, which is very. there's no pressure. There's no shaming. There's no not even any really cajoling. It's more inspiring slash leading by example. And trust me, like trying to get people vaccinated and all, I've tried what you read from was... To some extent, an explosion of frustration Mm. because for the previous bunch of months, I had tried presenting facts. I had led by example and gone out and gotten a booster shot and taken a picture of it and then sent that out to people. Hey, I'm now safer and less likely to end up whatever. I tried all the low key approaches and I would never have called anyone uh, a fucking idiot. Right. But then at at the end, I was like, okay. Anyone who was subject to the earlier forms of persuasion has either worked or not worked. Time to bring out the two by four and whack people upside the head and just say you're being a fucking idiot. And so I put some thought into that That was not off the cuff. That was something where it it was in, in sending the email to my friend. I didn't give a lot of thought, but in sharing something that I knew was a direct attack on hundreds of my readers, if not thousands, and that would piss them off. And that would cause some to literally unsubscribe from my business and, and disassociate themselves from me. I thought hard about that. But, and actually you should see the emails I had back and forth, my follow-up emails, because a bunch of people called me out on that and said, Whitney, what makes you think that even that atta- even if you're right, that attacking someone and calling them a fucking idiot is the best way to persuade them? And I said, I don't necessarily think it is. Uh, I agree with your general point. But I've tried all the other methods, so let's try this method as well. And I said, and they're like, oh, it's just going to kill your business. I said, you know what? For every one person who unsubscribes from me, 10 more are going to respect, are going to think it's interesting, it's provocative, and they're going to become more loyal customers. So I'll trade one for 10 all day long.
0: On that note of credibility and honesty and forthrightness, I propose wrapping up this time and picking up next time. Sounds good. Thank you. Whitney Tilson, thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at slash donate. Again, That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.